0: Bryn Communications, industry members, and eye care professionals are coming together to create a forum that connects the vision community in these unprecedented times. This program has been made possible in part with support from our premier sponsors, Allergan and Johnson & Johnson Vision Tier Science, as well as with support from Color Pharmaceuticals and Avellino Labs.
1: Hello, everyone. My name is John Kitchens with Retina Associates of Kentucky in Lexington, Kentucky. And I'm here again with another New Retina Radio COVID 19 uh, report. And this time we've got three guests that are really truly in the hot zone. Uh, With us tonight, we have Dr. George Williams from Associated Retina Consultants in Beaumont, Detroit, Royal Oak. Uh, We also have uh, Gwen Cousins with Retina Associates of New Orleans and Lisa almost coup, or we'll just call her Lisa, uh, from the University of Washington in Seattle. And I think you'll find that they will provide a lot of us across the United States who have yet to be impacted by uh, the coronavirus of COVID-19 as much as they have unique insights uh, into what they're going through, what they wish they would have known, and just in general advice for us as we traverse this uncharted territory. I'd like to start first with Dr. George Williams uh, in Detroit. And and George, Michigan has 7,600 cases of COVID with over 250 deaths. Most of these are focused in Detroit with over 5,500 people affected, 200,000 deaths. Uh, What is the state of your retina practice as it stands today uh, in Royal Oak?
2: Well, John, this has been a completely consuming process for us over the past literally two weeks. I would say two, certainly three weeks ago, we were a fully functioning, busy retina practice with 21 associates seeing patients as we normally do. We had 15 offices scattered throughout the state of Michigan. Today, we are now contracted down to, in Southeast Michigan, we have uh, three primary offices and we have one office, uh, two offices in Northern Michigan and two offices in Western Michigan. Our our patient volumes have dropped to about 20% of what we typically see. We have broken up our our partners and associates into teams with the idea that we're not going to cross contaminate. And so, at our big office in Royal Oak, which has uh, I think 16 exam lanes, full research capability, um, multiple imaging <clears throat> bays, uh, we basically are, are now seeing, and we're in a a busy day, we would see a couple hundred patients a day split between four doctors. Uh, now we're seeing uh, 40 or so patients a day. And we have uh, one team. The space is big enough that we can isolate the teams from one another. So we have one team that has uh, two doctors, uh, a scribe, and another team that has two doctors and a scribe. And then each team has their own separate fellow. And so these two teams no longer mix, you know, they don't have lunch together. Uh, we try and keep them separate apart. <clears throat> With that lower volume, we've now been able to decrease uh, our our patient flow to the point that we're seeing about one patient every 15 minutes or so. So we don't have crowds in the waiting room. Uh, patients are brought right in uh, and go to a room where we're essentially doing, uh, I won't say no imaging, but we're doing very minimal imaging. Uh, And the the people that we're primarily seeing now are are folks with active disease. Uh, We make a phone call to everyone a day or two before, we try and find out how they're doing. And if they're they're stable, if they have a disease like DME or RVO, we're we're recommending that they don't come in. we have good confidence that even if they get a little edema, we'll be able to deal with that down the road. If they have a disease, if they have wet AMD, then we're we're looking to see what's the vision in the fellow eye, uh, how active is their disease? Can we try and stretch them out a little bit? What drug they're on? So it has it is, to say it's been a game changer is an understatement. It's completely changed the way we do everything. We only have uh, three doctors who operate now. They happen to be the old guys. Uh, And the rationale there was, uh, I think everyone's aware that uh, age is a a risk factor for bad things happening if you pick this up. So uh, we're in a hospital-based setting in Royal Oak, but even in our other offices, we just have a limited number of people who do all the surgery now.
1: George, what are you all doing as far as personal protective wear? Are you wearing masks? Are they N95 masks? How, how do you approach patients? And are you doing anything different when it comes to the workup of those patients? Are you uh, not doing exams, just doing OCTs, deferring OCTs?
2: How are you handling that? So, so if it's an established patient where we have a good track record with them, we're, we're pretty much not doing any imaging. We're trying to minimize contact with the patient, with our staff and vice versa. So if it's someone that we've been treating regularly, we figure we're gonna treat them again anyway. Um, and the OCT is not gonna really change too much on us. We're, we're not playing the, the treat and extend game now. Uh, so we're, we're trying to move everybody out to a couple of months. One decision we did make was um, for our patients who are on a Avastin then um, we have many that are doing well. We're, we're trying to switch them over to a longer-acting drug, such as ILEA, with the idea that uh, they won't need to come back as frequently. Uh, obviously, we can have some discussions about what the Academy is doing about step therapy and prior authorization. Um, we're, we've been fortunate so far that even in patients where we can't get approval, we've been able to use samples. Uh, the exams are, are limited. We're, we're basically um, taking a quick, you know, the patients are getting dilated. Uh, we're taking a quick look uh, with an indirect sort of scan the anterior chamber. We're not doing sl- slit lump exams. Uh, we're telling patients up front, you know, this is, we're not having a long discussion here. Our goal here is to get you in and out. You know, we're happy to have discuss questions, but we're going to do all that over the phone at a, at a later time. So it really is, it's, uh, it's a completely different way to practice. And, and so far it, it seems to be working, but we're only a couple weeks into this.
1: George, you led into that or alluded to that earlier. What are some of the things that the Academy's doing? I know it seems like forever ago, but it was 10 days ago that the Academy gave the guidance to stop doing elective procedures. In hindsight, that looks very, very wise. What's the AAO doing at this point uh, and going forward specific to drugs and, and everything else?
2: Well, I'm frankly, very proud of the leadership that the Academy has taken on this and it's, it's multiple people, but I, I think uh, leadership comes from the top and David Park recognized that, that this was a big deal. San Francisco was an area that was hit hard. And so um, the executive committee of, of the Academy Board of Trustees uh, has been very aggressive in this. And at, as we distilled the best available information, it became clear that we were, uh, we were in for changes that none of us could imagine. The Academy was actually took the lead with the American College of Surgeons uh, with the recommendation to stop all elective surgery. And uh, just a day or two after that, I believe the, uh, the ACS followed suit. Um, frankly, we got, a, we got some pushback from a lot of places because uh, a lot of the country hasn't been hit by this. And I think if there's one take-home message that the three of us would like to provide to our ophthalmic brethren is that this is coming. There's no reason to believe your area is not going to be hit and that you need to prepare as quickly as you can for something that's gonna change your life literally overnight. George, how much of a risk do you think
1: retina doctors are of contracting this if they continue to see patients as this becomes um, a growing problem in their area?
2: Well, in my hospital that has uh, now over 300 COVID-positive patients, uh, Beaumont Royal Oaks, one of the largest hospitals in the United States. It typically is in the top five every year for single campus admissions, well over 50,000 admissions a year. Uh, and it has just totally disrupted everything that, uh, that our hospital does. Again, we're, we're only doing emergency surgery. Our Royal Oak practice is hospital-based, which is fortunate because virtually every ASC in our area is shut down now. So our surgical volume is actually pretty steady. Um, Yesterday, I did five cases. Uh, Two of them were from people 100 to 200 miles away because there's just no place for a a recent retinal detachment to get fixed now in our area. The, The The changes uh, to everything that's going on in the hospital. Uh, I was on a call today. Uh, We now have 60 odd people on ventilators. Uh, A week ago, we had four. Wow,
1: that's remarkable. That's actually very, very scary. George, do you ever foresee a time when the academy will come out and say that no one should be seeing anything other than just detachments?
2: No, I think that I think we treat a lot of diseases that do require acute care. So what our hospital has done is, since I serve as chief, uh, I have to screen every operation that gets booked in ophthalmology. So my plastics guys come to me and say, you know, I got an orbital mass. Can we do this? My glaucoma guys say, you know, we have an uncontrolled pressure of 50. Can we do this? But I'm I'm canceling a lot of stuff. You know, if if you're trying to get a case on because you think it's a basal cell lid tumor, that's not happening. And if you think you're going to get a macular hole on or a macular pucker on, that's not happening. And the reason is is our, our hospitals basically now converting postoperative care units to intensive care units. And so the, our anesthesia staff is a great risk. Uh, you asked the question, what are the risks? Well, we have three anesthesiologists who, have, who are now COVID positive. We have residents who are COVID positive. Within ophthalmology, uh, that hasn't happened yet. Uh, within our practice, we have no physicians who are COVID positive. we have six employees who are COVID positive. And uh, our partners, we talk, it seems like every other night, and we're, I mean, we're realistic. It's just a question of when, not if, one of us gets it. And so hopefully, uh, you know, whoever that individual is uh, will do well, but that was the whole idea behind breaking everything up in the teams. Because once someone has it, then you have the issues of their, of their contacts. And you, you can easily have to shut down a significant portion of the practice. So we're, we're, even though we're all close friends, we are, we are staying away. I haven't seen uh, some of my partners now physically seen them uh, in over two weeks. And, and we're not anywhere near the peak. The projections for Michigan to peak are, are mid-April now.
1: Thank you so much, George. We'll come back and have a few extra questions for you here at the end, but I wanna move on while we have time here to Dr. Gwen Cousins. Gwen is in New Orleans where we've seen just a a tremendous spike in COVID-19 patients. And uh, Gwen, give us a, a little lay of the land. What are you experiencing in New Orleans right now?
3: So in New Orleans, we're still having growing numbers of cases that are identified. Um, the city is working hard to maintain social distancing, which is certainly happening. Um, people are are staying indoors. They're, they're not going to, uh, you know, they're not going to outings, um, but we're still seeing the numbers growing and we're hearing from the, the city medical societies and the hospitals that they're reaching saturation points this week and, um, they're on diversion. They're seeing uh, a, sor- a shortage mm-hmm. of PPE and asking for donations. Um, they have vents on order, but they uh, project that they will uh, have a shortage of vents uh, later this week. Um, they're also making plans to have facilities such as the convention center to be able to house patients uh, as a perhaps a step-down unit for patients infected that no longer require ventilation. So we're, we're seeing it uh, increase and in, in becoming more of an issue in the, in the coming weeks.
1: And how does your practice specifically look at this point? Uh, are you still seeing patients routinely? Do you still have a full cadre of staff? What's it look like for you individually?
3: Um, Well, we are still seeing patients, albeit very low numbers. We're about 25% of our volume that we were just three weeks ago. Um, One thing that we did that uh, I'm happy that we did is early on, we sent home any staff that wasn't essential for patient care, our billers, supervisors, and they're all working from home. So that has helped tremendously. Um I think that there was a delay in New Orleans with identifying early cases. Um, we weren't aware that it was here. We weren't testing for it. And uh, we were seeing patients maybe three weeks ago that we should have been turning away uh, and getting the numbers even lower sooner.
1: And you know, there's a lot of questions about Mardi Gras and the effect that Mardi Gras had with this. Um, Were doctors warning the area officials, don't do Mardi Gras, and was that the major culprit for the spread uh, of the coronavirus in New Orleans?
3: I think Mardi Gras was certainly a contributing factor with the volume of people that are in the city at that time, there's, there's no doubt that that contributed to rapidly growing numbers. Unfortunately, uh, the first case in New Orleans wasn't identified till two weeks after Monte Gras was over, and there really wasn't a lot of uh, physicians or you know, people from the medical society uh, requesting that Mardi Gras be on hold.
1: And are you able to take uh, essential emergency cases like retinal detachments uh, to the operating room, or is that very limited at this point?
3: Uh, at this point, it, we can still take emergent cases to the operating room. They have not been limiting us. And it's basically up to the surgeon to determine whether this case is required uh, to go and, you know, as opposed to wait. But now, are, you to be... going... oh, ahead. are
1: you concerned you're going to be called in to work in an ICU or an emergency room setting?
3: I, I am concerned about that. Um, so far, they, they have not uh, called us into work uh, in the hospital or in the ICU or in the emergency room, uh, but they have been discussing it at, at the uh, meetings of the city's medical society.
1: And what do you think is going to be next? What do you think New Orleans is going to look like in two weeks, uh, both from an ophthalmology retina perspective, but also just from a healthcare perspective?
3: Um, I think two two weeks, uh, the condition is probably gonna be a little bit worse than it is now as we're seeing the hospitals uh, on diversion and running out of supplies. Um, yeah, un- unfortunately, I-, I think in two weeks it it won't have turned the corner just yet. As far as ophthalmology practices, it's probably gonna be very similar. I mean, at this point, we're only seeing yeah, the most urgent patients that require treatment, you know we're screening them and having them not come in if if it's not absolutely necessary. Um, and of course it's on a patient by patient uh, consideration, you know um as far as what they have and what their needs are, you know their comorbidities, you know if they have if they're monocular. Uh, you know, or the vision in the other eye is involved. So it's 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 really hard to make a blanket statement. But well we're certainly keeping the non-essential patients away, and I see us continuing to do that as much as we have. There's several practices in the area that have just stopped practicing. Both multi-specialty practices and some retina-only practices have basically furloughed their employees and aren't seeing patients. And we've had calls from those offices to, you know, to see their patients. Well, actually not from the offices, but from the patients themselves who are having trouble you know, getting into their, uh, their ophthalmologist.
1: And Gwen, considering that you all are out front of this scenario compared to most of the country, what would be the one piece of advice that you would give those of us that haven't been as impacted right now, either from a personal standpoint or a professional standpoint, things that we should be doing that maybe you didn't do or that you did do and found was very successful?
3: Right. I think keeping uh patient patient numbers down by effectively screening them. I think that's one area where we fell short, especially, you know, 3 weeks ago before we, you know, understood the full uh, repercussions of everything going on and we're asking patients about travel or a fever and there are certainly many more questions that need to be asked, you know, to keep these patients healthy. And and out of your office if they don't need to be there, um, you know, sending all staff that can be sent home and to work from home was was uh, very helpful for us. So that's something to consider. Um, and organizing your clinic flow to where there's not really more than one patient in an area at any given time, I think, is really helping to reduce the spread. So your, you know, our waiting room we took out many of the chairs in the waiting room. And even so, there's really only one person in there at any given time because they're immediately brought into the back and worked up and we try to keep them in the same room. We have patients spread out about every 25 to 30 minutes. So are you you wearing
1: personal protective equipment for each patient, mask, gloves, gown?
3: uh, Well, we don't have gowns. We do have a good supply of surgical masks Um, and gloves, and we are using those when we see patients and we're offering patients the option of wearing a mask if they so choose.
1: Great, great, thanks Gwen. We'll come back with a few more questions here towards the end and now we'll move on to Lisa Olmos who's in Seattle at the University of Washington. And Lisa, you have been affected by this the longest. I think Seattle was really the first hot zone of COVID cases. Um, Lisa, first of all, are you all over the hump now? Are things starting to normalize? Or are you still kind of in an unusual place? Uh, No,
4: no, John, we're still very much in the thick of it. As you alluded to, the first US case was reported in the Seattle area in late January, and we had the dubious honor of having the first US death, known US death from COVID in late February. It was really in early um, March when, The disease really got on everyone's radar here, and we had a command, University of Washington Medicine had a command incident center set up. We had a task force within our Department of Ophthalmology, and the word was really out. We are still deep in surge planning. Uh, We've consolidated our clinical sites. We've uh, implemented a triage-like system to minimize each individual retina specialist exposure. Planning, of course, as Dr. Williams alluded to, that some of us will fall ill and need others to cover for us. And we're expecting peaks sometime within this month of April. In fact, just today, um, we've implemented uh, routine preoperative testing for COVID-19. We're fortunate to have a really good virology lab. And so I have three cases booked tomorrow, all retinal detachments, and today all of them got nasal swabbed, and we will expect the results tomorrow before those patients have surgery. And we are avoiding general anesthesia whenever possible to reduce uh, chance for droplet contamination. Um, If general anesthesia is necessary, such as if they are a child or have severe claustrophobia, uh, we're planning on intubating and paralyzing with deep extubation and any measures such as local anesthetic to reduce the cough reflex, draping fully down to the feet um, to direct the airflow down toward the feet and towards the ground uh, and trying to stay out of the room at the times of excavation.
1: That's really amazing. It sounds like then you, your duration of experience with this has led to some market changes compared to maybe what the rest of the country is doing.
4: Yeah, you know, it's really easy to underestimate how quickly this virus can spread within a community. Um, and by now, I think many of us in the Seattle community, if we don't have friends or family who have been impacted and COVID positive, we certainly have friends of friends. And so um, it's, it's, it's an interesting feeling. Uh, we, luckily, um, many of our tech companies that are based here in Seattle um, had uh, experience uh, dealing with uh, the outbreak in Asia and adopted social distancing and work from home very early. We're a very uh, tech-heavy, tech-savvy city. Um, Amazon and Microsoft. So I think that that helped us. But I think it's really important to treat everyone that you interact with in a clinical s- setting as a potential asymptomatic carrier. Um, I've, I wear contact lenses a lot, but now I'm on glasses. I have long hair, it's up in a bun. I've got a surgical cap on and a mask and I change into scrubs and um, change out of them at work and just take a decontamination shower before I go home with my family.
1: And are they testing doctors routinely in Seattle now, even asymptomatic doctors?
4: No. Um, If anyone has any hint of symptoms, though, we have uh, testing available to us with about a 24-hour turnaround.
1: And you had several outbreaks, uh, the biggest one in the nursing home um, that resulted in many deaths there. Do you do anything differently with your nursing home patients? Do you try to um, not see them as often? Do you take extra precautions? How do you handle a nursing home patient?
4: Well, yes, uh, we do the phone screening ahead of time. And if, let's say, for example, most common scenario would be a macular degeneration patient, we have to take uh, into account the status of the fellow eye. If you're just treating one eye and the patient has another eye that's doing well, um, a lot of times those uh, nursing home patients will have a family member, such as a child with whom you can communicate and talk about risks and benefits of bringing the patient in or not. And certainly, as I said, we treat every patient that we see in the clinic as a potential carrier.
1: So it sounds like, even though you've been going through this for almost a month now in the Seattle area, things really haven't normalized. If anything, they've gotten more directed towards isolation and trying to prevent the spread of this. Absolutely. Is
4: that right? Absolutely. Uh, you know, it's our feeling that this is a marathon and we're just, you know, entering the first mile of it. Um, and we're learning what works and we're trying to adopt the measures that are most protective for all those around us. We don't know what, what to expect, but it's important to stay ahead of the curve. Um, if you wait for official guidelines to come out and and don't think for yourself, you might regret that.
1: And retrospectively, if you were to go back three weeks ago, is there anything you would have done differently, uh, now at this point?
4: Well, I, I, I do wish we had started um, thinning out our clinics sooner. Um, in early March, we started posting signs on the front of our clinic doors warning about COVID, stating the symptoms that people can have, and putting a phone number. Turn, turn away and call this number to look for help. Um, early on, we started um, you know, per- trying to purchase and make these slit lamp shields, kind of sneeze guards for everyone, but I wish we had done that sooner as well. Um, Overall, though, I've been really pleased with the task force that our department set up and how hard everyone's been working to consolidate care and set up a triage system for our patients because we where, are where a safety think, net.
1: Where do you think you'll be in three weeks, four weeks from now?
4: Um, you know, I, I think that in three or four weeks, we'll probably have settled more into our triage system. That's only really started this week where we have every day uh, covered by a different member of our practice. Um, and there's one person in the OR on any given day and one person in the clinic on any, any given day. Um, and I, I think that right now there's still a number of patients who aren't aware of the gravity of potentially coming in to the medical center and being exposed. I think the message will be out and will be more streamlined. Um, but I, my concern is that we may, uh, although we haven't yet had any member of our ophthalmology team test positive. Um, we've had some fevers that have tested negative that, that some of our team members might be out and we might need to, to cover for them.
1: That's very insightful, Lisa. And hang in there just a minute and we'll come back to you. But I'd like to go back to George here for just a minute and talk about some of the uh, things that the Academy's doing on the billing front. You know, we just received an update that Medicare is now allowing us to do um, kind of an advanced reimbursement model, George. First of all, are you taking advantage of that? Are you taking advantage of some of the um, uh, initiatives from the government as far as helping with reimbursement for staff that have been uh, laid off or that you keep on and, and whatnot? How are you dealing with those those types of things?
2: So, uh, first of all, I would encourage everyone to go to the Academy website. Uh, we have, a, I think, an excellent resource there it's the first thing you see when 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 you log on if you just click that and go to the page it will address uh practice management issues it addresses uh the business side of things as well so we're um, we're pleased the academy is pleased that, that in the cares act there there does appear to be significant opportunity for physician practices to access uh, funding and so that's something that every uh, practice every retina practice certainly <clears throat> needs to become conversant with there are resources on the academy website you can go to cms but there is going to there's going to be a couple of opportunities the first will be uh, accelerated payment from cms so what they're going to do is they're going to look at sort of what your track record for payment was and you're going to be able to apply to get paid for services at about the same rate that you have historically. Now this is not a grant. This is just paying you money up front that eventually will be taken out of future services. But it's a way for you to try and maintain some cash flow. So that's that's one opportunity that people need to become conversant with quickly. So talk to your practice managers, talk to your practice attorneys, and, and see how you can do that. Uh, the Academy has also been active with our industry partners. In our space, of course, the two big ones are Regeneron and Genentech. And so we have requested and have received uh, help on accounts payable. Uh, I, be- I believe that Regeneron is now uh, starting with purchases after March 1st, gone to 150 days payable. That'll be very helpful. And Genentech has gone to 120 days. Um, the obvious issue is that when you're seeing 25% of your normal volume, and you're trying to keep your employees employed and paid, and you just don't have the cash flow uh frankly, the last people our practice would be paying would be the drug companies. And so now that we have this opportunity, we don't really have to worry about that. So kudos to both of those companies for stepping up and and doing the right thing. So those are immediate issues that practices need to understand Mm -hmm. and incorporate. Secondarily, uh, the Academy is, uh, through its various Washington connections, Uh, we are looking at the issues of prior authorization and step therapy. And our position is very simple. Practices that, um, as Gwen described, you've lost all of your support staff. They're working from home. We don't have time to play the prior authorization game, the step therapy game. We think that patients should have access to whatever medicine that doctor believes is in their best interest. And since we're trying to extend the the treatment interval as much as possible, where we have evidence that certain drugs may last longer, uh, those are gonna become our our preferred drug. Um, And then finally, we're, we're also very concerned uh, that the, the, the money that's available in the stimulus package becomes available in, in real time on a time course that it actually does make a difference. So we're holding uh, people's feet to the fire in Congress. We have some very strong congressional advocates. We're hoping that uh, step therapy and prior authorization can be temporarily suspended. That does not require legislation. That's a regulatory issue. We are in touch with the most senior people at CMS to uh, give them examples of how this is impacting care uh, and and how beneficiaries are being harmed. So we are optimistic that they will will see our point of view. Uh, We really do believe that it's the the best thing for patient care. One of the most difficult aspects of this whole process is, is a transition. We've all been trained to focus on the patient, individual patient care, what is best for that individual. And now we're having to struggle with that clinical principle and public health. So it's not just the effect of that patient uh, what's going to happen to their vision, but what happens when you take them out of where they are, expose them to to the community, expose them to people in your office, what are the risks of that? And so that's why organizations such as the CDC, uh, the AMA have been very clear that we all need to try and minimize our patient visits as much as we can until we can get through this and if there was one thing we wish we had done earlier it would have been to start at least a week earlier with with what we're doing and i think everyone who's the three of us who are living this dream now feel the same way so if if i would implore my colleagues if you're in an area where you haven't been hit yet I certainly hope you won't, but the odds are not very good that you're gonna be spared. And you, do, you need to be thinking about this right now. And you need to be talking with your partners and your practice managers, how you're gonna deal with this. Because when it comes, things literally change over a matter of a few days.
1: George, that's, that's great advice. And I think that's um, it's really good advice to close on here, unless any of the panelists have anything else that they want to add. I want to thank you, George and Gwen and Lisa for taking time out tonight uh, for the new Retina Radio COVID-19 uh, hotspot coverage. This is such a critical time, uh, not just for retina and for ophthalmology, but for our patients and our society. And so look forward in the coming weeks for more uh, updates from New Retina Radio.
0: Thank you all. Bryn Mawr Communications, industry members, and eye care professionals are coming together to create a forum that connects the vision community in these unprecedented times. This program has been made possible in part with support from our premier sponsors, Allergan and Johnson & Johnson Vision Tear Science. As well as with support from Kala Pharmaceuticals and Avalino Labs. This webcast podcast is intended solely for ophthalmic healthcare professionals and ophthalmic industry representatives. By accessing this webcast podcast, I acknowledge that Brynmark Communications LLC, here in BMC, along with any all third-party corporate supporters of this webcast podcast, makes no warranty. Guarantee or representation as to the accuracy or sufficiency of the information presented in this webcast podcast. BMC, along with any all third party corporate supporters of this webcast podcast, do not endorse, approve, recommend, or certify any of the opinions or information presented or mentioned. BMC expressly disclaims any and all liability or responsibility for any direct, indirect, incidental, special, consequential, or other damages arising out of any individual's use of, reference to, reliance on in this webcast podcast.